Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to my co-host and fellow committee member, Professor Alison Leary. Hello, Alison. How are you this week? Hi, Rachel. Great to be back. And it sounds like um, you're in the middle of a really busy week, Alison. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for finding the time. Alison, lots has changed since our last edition. We've got a new Secretary of State for Health. We're moving towards unlocking most of the COVID restrictions. And the Queen has awarded NHS staff with the George Cross in recognition of their work on the pandemic. What did you think of that? Many in nursing said they'd actually rather have a decent pay rise than a medal. I think it's always nice to be recognised, isn't it? But uh, I do agree. I think a lot of people are really now wondering what the pay review body is going to recommend and what comes after that. So recognition is, is always very nice, but I think respect and reward also goes as part of that. Yeah, and I think we're probably expecting something from the pay review body next week, but who knows? Our special guest today is uh, June Gervin. June is Professor Emeritus of Nursing at Oxford Brookes University. Hello, June, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hi, Rachel. It's very nice to be here. And where are you speaking to us from, June? I'm at home in glorious Devon. I'm retired now, so I'm sitting in the warmth of my conservatory, looking out across the expanse of Lime Bay. So jealous vibes coming my way, I think. Absolutely (laughs) jealous vibes. How lovely. Lime Bay. We should have come down and recorded the um, episode in your conservatory. June, you're a strong supporter of the campaign to protect the title of nurse in UK law, and we're going to come on to talk about that shortly. But one of the big stories this week, of course, is the removal of all coronavirus restrictions um, on Monday, the 19th of July, next Monday. The government and its new health secretary, Sajid Javid, is pushing through the end of restrictions, including the compulsory wearing of face coverings and social distancing, despite what we're seeing as a huge rise in new COVID cases. June, will you be doing anything different next week? Well, I won't, actually. I've been very rigorous about following the restrictions throughout the COVID uh, pandemic, and I won't be doing anything different. Um, I shall continue to wear my mask in enclosed spaces. I shall uh, continue to not go into crowded places unless I have to. And I shall do my best to keep away from other people, as it were, because I just think it's premature to lift those restrictions right now. Cases are rising, uh, hospitalizations are rising. It may be slow, but they're rising. And I think an awful lot of people have a sense of impending doom, especially amongst healthcare professionals. You know, the, the people I sit here on Twitter, the people I talk to, there is this kind of sense of rolling eyes and here we go again. So let's start with that question of unlocking on Monday. It's been described as a giant experiment with the population. Loughborough University data analyst Dr Duncan Robertson told the BBC that ending restrictions while cases are rising steeply is like taking the control rods out of a nuclear reactor. So we do know that more than 50% of the population are now fully vaccinated and the government seems to be banking on this keeping deaths down. But no vaccine is 100% effective. And as you say, June, we're already seeing that rise in in hospital admissions. New cases are almost 30,000 a day. And Public Health England is estimated potentially 200,000 cases a day 
by mid-August in what's been called the exit wave. Alison, what shape do you think the NHS is in to handle this now compared to a year ago? Well, I think that there are some really significant challenges now. So we've already got the, I think, a psychological issue with the workforce in that people are really dreading this. Many people are saying to me they can't do it again. There are different types of demand associated with this. So, you know, I think there's obviously been some modelling to say there's going to be another increase in hospitalisations and deaths, and we're starting to see that now. We've also got a couple of other significant things happening. The resurgence of other viruses, and particularly RSV in the paediatric population, and certainly we've been asked to do modelling for for increased capacity in hospital and in ITU, but also the work that's not been done so far. So the people with long-term conditions, cancer, and the, the pressure to catch up I think is going to add to that workload and and make things quite difficult for people. I think that there also seems to be, you know, although there's a talk of completely unlocking and taking away those those restrictions, there is an increasing move for face coverings to remain mandatory in some public places. I think just recently Transport for London um, announced that. And then there's the call for um, that to be the case in, in health and care settings. But I wonder if, if that really could lead to confusion. And, and June, I wonder if you think there needs to be clearer public messaging or, around that. You said, you know, you will continue to wear a face covering. Does there need to be more guidance to the public, do you think? I, th- I think that's quite tricky because I do think, I hope, but I do actually think most people are pretty sensible. And anybody who has been concerned about the pandemic, and I think that's most people, will continue to try at least to protect themselves. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that people automatically think this mask is for protecting others. I think they think, now I'm double jabbed, actually, I probably don't need it. I think the government could be perhaps a bit more forceful when it talks about common sense and when it talks about people taking personal responsibility because we know that lots of people won't take personal responsibility or they'll take personal responsibility in a way that mean that is you know me first and everybody else um, comes comes along second so I do think even if they came out and said you must do this there will still be people who won't Um, and that's been the case all through the pandemic and I think it's quite difficult to do anything about those few people. I do believe, you know, because I believe in the inherent kind of goodness of people, mm. really, that most people will continue to do what they can to protect themselves and protect others. And I, to be honest, I think that's the best we can hope for. I don't think this government's going to turn around and say, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Then they they do U-turn, but usually not until... Um, you know, the lack of U-turn has caused quite a lot of damage. So we just have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, and I think that, that message around the mask being for the protection of others, I think is a really important one to try to try and get out there, that, you know, you wear your mask to, to protect others rather than your, yourself. And I think you're right that often people don't quite get that. You know, I don't see many people. Where I am here, we have lots of visitors, obviously. I'm on the East Devon mm. coast. And you do see... And quite a lot of people without masks outside. But in our little shops, people are wearing masks. You know, they do wear masks. I've never seen anybody make a fuss about wearing a mask. I've never seen anybody have to tell someone to put a mask on. You know, I'm reassured by that, um, actually. And I, I think in lots of places that will still continue to be the case. 
Yeah, and I think there is some evidence that absolutely, as you you say, actually people will try and and do the right do the right thing for themselves, for their families, and and for communities. And I guess it's making sure that we get the right messages out to help them do that. That's right. Alison, do you think the sort of approach to unlocking in in this way shows that maybe Sajid Javid, as our new health and care secretary, will have a different approach to Matt Hancock? Are we missing Matt Hancock yet as health secretary? (laughs) Sorry, that's a good question. (laughs) I think it's it's a very different approach, isn't it? it? It is really perhaps more economy first. I think we're seeing a more libertarian kind of approach with the current health secretary. I think Matt Hancock was very different stylistically. And I I was actually reflecting back to to Jeremy Hunt. He did seem to be a bit more focused on some of the sort of wider issues. I think the gaze of the last two health secretaries has been quite narrow into perhaps fields that they have been more familiar with. So it was technology for Matt Hancock and it's the economy for Sajid Javid. So I think time will tell. Hmm. June, you've, um, as I have, seen a number of health secretaries come and go. Are there any that you think um, have been particularly good for the profession or particularly bad for the profession? Oh, another difficult question. I'm, I was reflecting on this, actually, before I dialed in. And um, in my lifetime, um, there have been 28 health secretaries. And in my working life, there have been 18. That's quite a lot, really. And I have to say, uh, quite a lot of them have passed me by. You know, the first health secretary I actually remember was in the late 70s was David Ennels, if anybody remembers David Ennels. And that was in that that ill-fated Callaghan government of 1970s. But I suppose the first health secretary I was really aware of was Norman Fowler. Most, Most health secretaries that were part of my clinical working life were, of course, through the Thatcher years. So I suppose I remember Norman Fowler because of the introduction of the, you know, the the Griffiths report and the introduction of general management. And I was thinking about that. And I guess, you know, there were some nurses who were able to take advantage of that, those early days of general management. And I'm thinking of Christine Hancock, particularly, that kind of opening up was helpful to nurses who wanted to move into management. But I don't think it lasted really. You know, you get a bit further on to when NHS trusts came in in 1990. And that was kind of through six health secretaries. They really failed to stipulate having a nurse on the board. So many early NHS trusts didn't have a nurse on the board. So I guess my, my memories of health secretaries are things that they didn't really do you know nursing was always tended to be this kind of afterthought you know and it took a couple of years of campaigning then to uh, to, to get nurses as a, as a requirement on even onto trust boards uh, and that would have been in William Waldegrave's time or maybe even Virginia Bottomley and I know because I became a director of nursing at that time really 1993 and it was really difficult because you felt almost foisted onto organizations that hadn't wanted nurse executives at that point. So I think, you know, my recollections of health secretaries doing things for nursing are not particularly positive ones. Let's see if we can persuade this current health secretary that nursing really does matter and that they need to listen to to what nurses have to say. Well, it's possible, I suppose. But as Alison was saying, you know, his focus, it's very early days, absolutely. But he knows the economy and he knows about Mm. economics. And I think... Uh, 
that doesn't necessarily bode well for a very large workforce wanting increased pay. But, you know, let's wait and see. He may have a sudden flash of compassion. So, um, so Junior, in a group called Protect Nurse, perhaps you could yeah. tell us why that group was formed and what its aims are. Well, Alison started it, really. I suppose um, I've been part of a, of a group of people for a little while who has been chuntering on about wanting to protect the title nurse um, because, uh, as we say in the campaign, anybody can use it at the moment. Anybody can say they're a nurse. And I feel particularly strongly that that's, that's not right. In terms of patient safety, it's not right. In terms of protecting the profession, it's not right. Um, and in terms of honesty and transparency for patients, it's not right. So for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really, of how do I engage to support something that I felt strongly about for a long time. Alison started up the Protect Nurse petition, uh, and I thought, well, if she needs any support with this, I'm here, I'll help. And that's how I got engaged, really. Um, you know, uh, Alison spoke to me and said, do you want, do you want to be a more active part of this and I jumped in and said yes I I really would. So Alison you initiated the petition June's talking about to protect the title of nurse in UK law what does your petition actually call for? The petition calls for um, legal protection of the term so lots of people use it as a verb and that's fine it's not an issue it's really around people that are claiming to provide services or advice in the context of health or social care that we'd really ask for protection for. We published a paper in 2017 which showed the titles were misused. Since then, I've had a steady stream of correspondence from the public or direct messages on Twitter from people that felt they've been deceived. I've also had uh, correspondence from people like support workers who felt they were being pressurised into claiming they were something they were not. And one of the things that I think has really struck me is how people like the recent nurse who's been struck off, the anti-vax nurse, have just declared they're going to still keep using the title. So what we'd, we'd be really looking for, and obviously a petition isn't legislation, it only asks for a, one request and it's up to legislators to see how it's actually done, but it really is to prevent fraud. Employers and individuals misusing the title and deceiving the public is the primary reason for it. It's not particularly a professional issue, although it is a professional issue, but it's really about protecting the public. One of the questions that I know people have, have asked is, you know, what's the evidence that it's needed? So you've um, mentioned that you've had sort of direct correspondence. Is this a big problem? Do we see a lot of fraud of people saying they're nurses when they're, they're not? I do now, but I think that's because we've put the petition out there and we've put research out there in the past. Mm. So I had an interesting one the other day that it was actually it was actually from the RCN Northern Ireland, and they were they were telling me how they'd seen school nurses adverts come onto the job market where a nursing qualification was optional. Now, school nursing is actually a defined annotation with the NMC, so it requires first level registration and a skiffen post-registration qualification. But employers can absolutely do what they want now, um, particularly in England. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's becoming more of an issue. As as Since the 2012 Health and Social Care Act, the 
NHS in England in particular has become a free market with many different employers now and not just the NHS. And I think some of those employers are either willingly or unknowingly not really understanding that nursing is a professional work or the risk that it carries and actually that you do need qualifications and education to do it. June, you said that you're part of the group supporting the petition, Protect the Nurse. And there are so many different roles and titles in in nursing. Do you think the public really understand the difference between people with this great plethora of different job titles? Um, I don't think they do at all. Quite a lot of the time, professionals don't understand who everybody is. So what hope has someone who's maybe sees a group of people for 24 hours, 48 hours, what hope have they of really knowing who and what people are? I think that's quite difficult. If people introduce themselves, I think it helps. And, you know, we've, we've seen a, a shift um, in that over the past few years. But I don't think that general public really understand. I mean, I've only got anecdote and personal experience to go on. But I know that my parents thought that Anybody um, female who approached their bed in a uniform was a nurse. Also, myself, when I was in hospital, because I did know the difference between uh, a registered nurse and uh, a nurse, uh, you know, a healthcare support worker, I knew when I was feeling ill who I wanted to speak to and who I wanted to see. And, and, And for me, that's the difference between me and someone who doesn't know that difference. They take it on trust. And the issue for me is, as Alison said, it's about fraud, and it, but it's also about trust. Patients trust those people that they think are nurses to have the education and the skill and the ability to care for them in a way that may save their lives, For you know, is the most obvious thing. Um, and I think if it's not clear what role those people have, then I think it abuses that trust that that people have. I don't think we can reasonably expect patients to differentiate between the whole mix of people they may see in a healthcare incident, if if you like. So I think it is incumbent upon the professionals themselves and their employers to make it very clear who is what, so that patients can differentiate and can perhaps temper their expectations or measure their expectations. I don't want that to sound denigratory because every role in healthcare is valuable and every worker is valuable within their scope. But scope is a a very important part of work when it comes to actually uh, how far you can go in helping people, how far you can go in saving a life. And I think it's important that people know those boundaries so that they can temper their expectations and uh, know who they're dealing with. I mean, it's a small example, but recently we saw, um, you know, that there was an MP, wasn't there, who, when he was campaigning, claimed he was a nurse, um, obviously thinking it it would get him votes. And actually, when challenged on it, he wasn't a nurse at all. So, uh, you know, there are all sorts of ways, I think, that the title nurse can be used to mislead. It is bad news and it's time that the title nurse was protected. Registered nurse is protected. 
but registered nurse isn't the title that's in common usage. You know, when you, if you're in hospital, you don't call registered nurse, do you? You call nurse and expect that the person who comes to you will be a nurse. It's, you know, that's the way things are. But they may not be. And in other areas, you know, uh, where you might expect to see a nurse uh, and, and it isn't. I know at my GP surgery sometimes they'll say, come and see the nurse and it's not actually a nurse and that's and that's fine for what that person's doing it's not actually a nurse but they say it's a nurse um and i just think it's time that that stopped really it's it feels messy it feels disrespectful and it feels it does feel fraudulent whether it's meant to or whether it's not it just feels fraudulent um and the and the trust issue sits sits badly with me so those are my views i suppose for 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 what they're worth um It's time we protected it, you know, so that nurse is the protected title for registered nurses. And I also want to be very clear about that, um, because I think there's a danger that the whole kind of scope of people who do nursing work, if you like, may be swept up into the protection of the title nurse. And I think that would be wrong. I think I would want the title nurse to be protected to registered nurses. Alison, so what are your thoughts on that and whether the petition would be in any way detrimental to those other people who carry out some of that nursing work, so nursing support workers? I would very much hope not, very much hope it would be the opposite. So one of the challenges that I have in my day job as a workforce modeller is that people like nursing support workers actually provide huge amounts of care but are basically invisible they don't have a particularly clear identity. And in, in many ways, they have their own issues with the myriad of different titles that they hold. I was very pleased when I think it was Congress a couple of years ago, nursing support workers wanted to be called nursing support workers within the college and, and have a category of um, membership because we think we really need to articulate what they do and their value. And that is currently very difficult because what we have is this homogenized workforce. Aside from the fact that employers are clearly calling people nurses when they are not registered nurses, that also really, I think, masks the contribution of support workforce, which has become increasingly complex work. And one of the reasons we've gone for registration rather than education in the petition is because nursing support workers now are increasingly qualified and educated people. But there is so much variance. So I meet working nursing support workers with foundation degrees and NVQs, huge amount of experience, a lot of continuing professional development. And there's a question there about them being exploited, but that's a different argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But then I also meet people that are, you know, the one that sticks in my mind is the district nurse who had been a nursing, uh, had been a hairdresser's apprentice two weeks beforehand and had received a few days training on things like manual handling was out in the community claiming to be a district nurse. And that's the thing, it's too much variability. And to articulate the contribution of that entire workforce, we need to be clear about who does what. That's so difficult though, isn't it? This business of who does what. They're increasingly blurred, aren't they, Alison? The lines are are increasingly blurred. And the more they blur, the more difficult it is then to differentiate. Um, And I think... Uh, I suppose for me, that's another reason for wanting to make that differentiation now before we get to a point where it's too difficult to differentiate. 
and it can't happen. And I do, I worry about that, I think. You know, defining what nurses do, what registered nurses do, has always been so difficult, other than in a simple task way, uh, which is often what what you see, um, Mm -hmm. and what really doesn't cut it um, anymore. So I don't know how we get around that, um, but it's so important as, in fact, you know, it underpins, if you like, the petition and the work to protect nurse. It under the, the business of what nurses do underpins all that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's around accountability, really. So the public need to know who is accountable for what. Yeah, sure. And at the moment, I think that's not very clear to the public because the correspondence I get at least is around, you know, I, I don't get correspondence from people that where things have gone well and they really didn't care who treated yeah. them, <laughs> which is probably yeah. the majority, actually. Yeah. As long as yeah. you've got someone in front of you that can solve your problem, it's not a problem. The correspondence I get is from people where things have not gone well and they've perhaps tried to report someone to the NMC only to find they're not on the register. Yeah. So there's, there's that issue around accountability as well. The regulation of health professionals is actually one of the areas to be addressed in the new Health and Care Bill for England, which the government published last week. And although this is a bill for England, professional regulation is a UK-wide responsibility. And the bill would give the Secretary of State more power personally to reform professional regulation. June, I listened recently to a talk of yours where you talked about regulation as a fundamental professional issue. So, why is regulation so important to, for a profession? Well, I, you know, I think it is that public pronouncement, really, that uh, one is safe and competent and has had uh, the right and proper preparation um, to do the things that, that one is purporting to be capable of doing. So, you know, regulation is about protecting the public from the charlatan, you know, from the the person who wants to mislead. Uh, It's one way of that protection. But it's also about, you know, you have to meet certain requirements in order to be placed on a register and be subject to to that, the regulation that that the register provides. And without that preparation, you don't get there. So the the whole business of I know Alison was just talking about um, not using education as a as a as a marker. I think that you know that whole preparation thing is really important, and regulation is based on that whole prep- preparation and and the continuing education and, and keeping up to date. So the responsibilities you have in law, if you like, as a regulated professional. I think that most professionals do understand them. But again, I think the public don't necessarily understand um, the difference between the regulated and the unregulated. And that's the accountability argument again, I think, is who they can take to task and who they can't take to task over work done or not done or outcomes achieved or not achieved. I can't imagine there not being... um, a regulated uh, nursing profession, really. It doesn't kind of make any sense to me. Uh, so regulation, it's, it's just um, one of those things that is, it has to be. It's, you know, it's fundamental to the way that a nurse needs to operate in order to protect the people she's working with. I think it's important for nurses to be active in that political arena to influence policy and in this case, legislation. 
I think it's very important. I think I think it's crucial. But I, I also think that, that nurses can be active in lots of different ways. You know, rather than use the kind of political word, I think activism is a much stronger word, I think. And a nurse is to be active in influencing upwards, downwards, sideways is is so important. You know, so I think if you get yourself a voice in somewhere, whether it's whether you get a voice by virtue of title, whether you get a voice by virtue of a leadership position, whether you get a voice by being active on social media, you should use it for the greater good of the of the uh, you know people that you you want to help. So I think there are lots of ways to influence and I think all nurses should try to influence. Activism is becoming increasingly important I think and I think it's becoming increasingly important for a collective to make their views known. I do think the days of belonging to a particular organization or belonging to a particular political party even if you like I think they're waning a little bit and I think that influence now is coming more from independent activists creating groups of like-minded people when you think about the the groups of people that have been uh, very influential think about think around things like Black Lives Matter um, and the people who have come together to to push that into all areas of life, really, and places where you wouldn't necessarily have seen those, you know, views being pushed. Think about our footballers, for instance, who are becoming terrific political influencers. I'm not sure they set out particularly to be political influencers, but the strength and the following and their commitment to the common good is unquestionable. Mm. So, you know, I think that activism comes in a lot of different ways and nurses should embrace independent activism as much or even more so than they embrace the kind of past sorts of collective activism that we've seen um, up to now. I think times are changing um, when it comes to activism. People who are independently getting a collective or creating a viewpoint are becoming quite powerful and um, organisations need to take note of that, I think, because it's a change and it's an important change. Alison, we've seen the outline of the, the health and care bill. You know, what are, where are the areas that you think we should be looking to, to influence or to, to lobby in, within some of those um, segments of the bill? In one of the areas, uh, there's some considerable areas missing from it, and one of them's workforce in health and social mm. care. And it looks like social care's got kicked into the long grass yet again. But I mean, around safe staffing legislation and holding the government to account for workforce, mm. um, I think things like the move away from the internal market is quite welcome. But I'd like to see the return to intelligence based workforce planning. Because we haven't had that for some time. In fact, that when when Lancely uh, introduced the Health and Social Care Act, we used to have the Centre for Workforce Intelligence, and I'd like to see a return of, of an organisation similar to that, which was independent of government, mm. um, and actually spoke to employers and the professions around what kind of workforce might be needed, you know, five years, ten years down the line. Um, and and what we see now is all these kind of new jobs being invented to solve old problems. And that's not necessarily the right way to do this. So I think we need to have a 
we need good horizon scanning, good forecasting, good understanding of demand, and none of that is addressed in the bill. And money being thrown at areas where it can only possibly provide a short-term sticking plaster. Mm. Um, you know, there's never... I was I was looking this morning at the money that's being given to um, ambulance trusts, I think, to help solve some of the problems they're experiencing. And it's likely most of it will go on bank and agency staff in order to boost the workforce, and which is right and proper and absolutely necessary. But there's no longer term strategic view on how you solve these issues of increasing demand because increasing demand is here to stay in my view it's not a blip it's not just caused by the pandemic it was growing before and I think it will uh, continue to grow and meanwhile while it's been growing at at quite a slow rate we've been well I say we uh, I don't mean we I mean that you know they have been busy decimating um, services, you know, cutting services, reducing numbers, reducing staffing levels, pairing right back. And it's a perfect storm, really, that we are going into. And the pandemic has highlighted that. But I think it would be happening anyway. This perfect storm of not enough acute care beds absolutely destroyed community services, really, you know, pre-hospital and emergency care on their knees. And um, it is a perfect storm. And But still, even with this bill, which is one, one su- supposes it's a strategic look at what's required, even with the bill, it doesn't feel like it's hugely long-term. And it's, the whole business of integrated care systems, that will be all about relationships. And we know that in some places, relationships between acute and secondary care are fantastic and integrated care services will only promote and support that. But in other cases, we know it's a hotbed of divisive political point scoring. And I was reading something that Sean Linton, the the reporter, a health reporter for The Independent, was saying this morning. And he was actually saying that, you know, organisational culture will eat integrated care services for breakfast. And and he's absolutely right, I think. We still have problems with culture in healthcare um, strategically as well as on a on a you know a person-to-person basis. It takes me straight back to the early 1990s. You know, where have we been for, for 40 years? If people, you know, are still forgetting, because I, I hope it's a for- It's forgetfulness and not a deliberate omission. You know, where have we been that people still are not seeing nurses as absolutely key to the development of healthcare systems? Absolutely key. And I despair, really, when you see that they're not there or they're not intended to be there, given the outline. And I don't know whether that's for a lack of influence when these bills are being prepared. I don't know whether it's just that people assume that nurses are still managed by doctors, you know, and that if as long as they've got a doctor there, they've got the whole workforce catered for. I hope not. But it does make you wonder, really. Those perceptions don't seem to have shifted very much in in 40 odd years. We've come to the end of the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks and we'd love to know what you would like us to talk about. Tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. We'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of the podcast. 
that's the end of the podcast for today. So thanks to our special guest, Professor June Gervin. It's been a pleasure to be with you. It's been fun. I hope I haven't waffled too much. (laughs) And to uh, Alison Leary for co-hosting. Thanks, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our next edition. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. So thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.